I thank you, Jake and team. Appreciate the awesome worship that you put together for us. You guys do a great job, and we're just so grateful for all of you on the worship team and all the work that you put into it each and every week. And Chelsea, thank you for coordinating it and putting a great video together. We are so grateful. It's It's been wonderful to have that each week, and it, it really seems to connect us as a family. So thank you for doing that. Today we're going to begin, um, we're, we're going to stay in the series that we've been doing about looking at different questions in the Bible that God or Jesus asked. But what we're going to do for the next two weeks, we're going to go to the book of Haggai. Haggai is a short book in the Old Testament that's a book by one of the prophets. It's just a two-chapter two chapter, uh, book. And in there, there's two questions that we are going to look at over the next couple weeks. Let me read them to you. Haggai 1 verse 4, it says, Why are you living in luxurious houses while my temple lies in ruins? And then at Haggai 2 verse 3, it says, Does anybody remember this house, this temple, in its former splendor? How in comparison does it look to you now? It is a way of introduction. This is not a, it's not a series, a little mini-series on giving. It is not a capital campaign for more money. It's not about raising money because we're going to build a church. What this book is about, it's a book of hope. And it's a book of encouragement. It's a book about people who felt defeated, people that felt uh, they felt discouraged. And the prophet uh, Haggai comes in to encourage the people. So what we're going to look at in the book of Haggai, we're going to look at about our relationship with God. See, in the Haggai, when it talks about the house or it talks about the temple, it's talking about your relationship with God. So when God says, are you building the temple? He's saying, are you actively pursuing your relationship with me? Are you making God a priority in your life? Because when you make God a priority in your life, we become more like Jesus. We come to become more like the people that we are created to be. So we're going to look at that element in the book of Haggai, how we become more Christ-like, how we can become more like the people we're created to be. But also the book of Haggai serves as a great warning for us. It's a book about how people live through discouragement. So I believe this book is very important for us in 2020. It's very important for us as we're going through the situation right now. Because it's an interesting book in the Bible because it's all about hope and it's all about discouragement. It's about a group of people, the Israelites, who wanted to put God first. They wanted to put God first and rebuild the temple in, in Jerusalem and they got started on it and after a little while, they lost their passion, they got discouraged, and they gave up. And I think all of us can relate to the book of Haggai. We understand what it's like to say, yes, I'm going to make God a priority in my life. I'm going to build the temple. I'm going to work on my relationship with God. And you get all excited in a matter of minutes or moments or hours or days later, you find that suddenly the priority that you had to put God first is not happening. And you become discouraged. See, the book of Haggai is written about 520 B.C. It's about 18 years after the Israelites were released from captivity in Babylon. The, the tribe of Judah that we're specifically talking about today was part of the Israelites. Uh, there's two tribes, the northern tribe and the, the tribe of Judah. And the tribe of Judah, they had been in captivity in Babylon for 70 years. And at, towards the end of their captivity, they were lamenting before God that they desired to go back to Jerusalem. They desired to go back to their home, and they desired to rebuild the temple, and they prayed and prayed and asked God to send them back, and God answered their prayers. 
They got sent back to Jerusalem and they get there and they're all excited. They're building their temple. They're restoring the temple that was destroyed. Their houses were destroyed. The temple was destroyed. Their crops were destroyed. Their businesses were destroyed. But they put God first in their life and they were working on the temple. But then after a little while, they got discouraged. They stopped working on the temple and they started working on their houses and they worked it on their fields. And so the prophet Haggai comes to the people of Israel about 16 or 18 years after they got back and he's raised up by God to speak to the people of Israel to get them back on track. See, the people of Israel, they've been humbled by the time that they spent in Babylon. It was a good experience for them because they learned that they needed to put God first. And they had all this hope and ambition that God was going to be the priority in their life. And now they get back home and suddenly God is no longer the priority. And they put God second in their life. And not only is God second in their life, but they're finding that everything in their life isn't going that well for them. Their businesses aren't going well. The crops aren't doing well. And they're discouraged. See, before we read the book of Haggai, I want to talk about a verse in the, book, in the book of Proverbs that many of you have heard before. This verse gets quoted a lot, and usually when it gets quoted, it gets quoted in the King James Version, and that's Proverbs 29, verse 18, just the first part I'm going to read. It says, where there's no vision, the people perish. I think this is one of those verses that you read in the Bible that sometimes we don't fully understand the full impact of this verse. A lot of times you'll see this verse quoted in Christian leadership books where they're making the case of how important it is for a church or a business or a company to have a very good vision statement, a very good mission statement, or a very good purpose statement. And they usually use this verse to say, if you don't have it, then people will perish. They're not sure what they're going to do. And that, this is part of what that verse can mean because the language in there would support that you need to have a good vision for your company or for your church, especially when it's given to you by God. But I think if we just reduce this verse to just having a mission statement for a church or for a business, we lose a lot of the impact of this verse. This verse has a much bigger meaning than just have a good vision statement for your company. If you look at some of the other translations, you'll see in the NIV, it says, where there is no revelation, the people cast off restraint. In the New Living Translation, it says, when people do not accept divine guidance, they run wild. Another translation says, without guidance from God, law and order disappear. Another translation says, without revelation, people run wild. And finally, the ESV translation says, where there is no prophetic vision, the people cast off restraint. Suddenly, when I read these other translations, you start to pick up a little bit more of a meaning for this verse. See, the vision here is referring to special revelation and guidance from God. It's all about revelation that would come through a dream or through a vision or for God speaking to you through the Bible. Any revelation that would come to you needs to line up with the Word of God as a standard. See, a special revelation or guidance from God can be those times when you're reading the Bible and suddenly the meaning of a verse or a chapter jumps out for you, up to you. Or maybe you're reading the Bible and suddenly you, you have more of a conviction of what you need to do. Or you feel a direction while you're reading the Bible. That's what this verse is referring to. It's about those times when you receive that special revelation from God, when God is speaking to you through his word. But it's also about seeing the world as the way God sees the world. 
It's about seeing the world through the guise that God has. See, so much of what Jesus did in the New Testament was to open people's eyes to see the truth. We have story and miracle after miracle in the New Testament about Jesus would pray for people that were blind and their sight was restored. And so often the prophetic meaning of that, the sight being restored, is that their eyes were opened so that they could see the truth. Jesus came to restore truth. And part of this verse in Proverbs is talking about receiving the truth. You might remember in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, it says, Satan, who is the god of this age, has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. They are unable to see the glorious light of this good news. They don't understand this message about the glory of God, who is the exact likeness of God. See, a theme from the New Testament is the battle between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness. And the battle is over truth. So often we see that theme woven through the New Testament is that if that only Jesus can open your eyes. And if you can transform the way a person sees, you can transform their entire life. And that's what this translation is telling us. Where there is no prophetic vision, the people cast off restraint. And the second part of this verse that sometimes doesn't get quoted as much as it should, but blessed is he who keeps the law. This principle of this verse is communicating to us that when society does not follow the word of God, society is going to fall into moral chaos. But when you follow God, when you're obedient to the word of God, you are blessed. See, that, that, that phrase or that word that's translated to cast off restraint carries the idea of a total loss of social order. It's the same word that's used in Exodus 32 to describe the Israelites' behavior after they worship the golden calf. Some of you might remember that story in Exodus uh, chapter 32 where Moses goes up, up, goes up Mount Sinai. And he's going to come back in 40 days. And while he's gone, the Israelites are down at the bottom of the mountain. And they're worried. They're wondering, will he really come back? Or will he die when he's on the mountains? And it's sad because these Israelites had seen the miracles that God had, had done. They've been with Moses when the Red Sea parted. They see how God got them out of captivity. And now they're, they're with Moses. And Moses is up at Mount Sinai meeting with God. And they're worried that he's not going to come back. So after Moses has gone too long, chapter 32 of Exodus tells us that the people got a little bit worried. And they thought, well, he's probably dead. So they said, okay, let's make a golden calf. We've got to find something else to worship. So, God, so Moses is in the mountain with God. And God tells Moses, no, you've got to go back down and straighten out those people. And we read in Exodus 32, verse 25, it says, Moses saw that Aaron had let the people get completely out of control. That's the same word that's used in, in, in Proverbs about cast off restraint. That the people are completely out of control, much to the amusement of their enemies. So he stood at the entrance of the camp and he shouted, All of you who are on the Lord's side, come here and join me. And the Levites gathered around Moses. The people were completely out of control. They had lost their prophetic revelation of who God was. And they're out of control. And they're lacking, lacking restraint. And suddenly they're in chaos. And what does Moses do? He calls people out. He said, who is on the Lord's side? Come out of the chaos. And who comes out? The Levites come out. See, that's significant because in the, the Levites were the priests. 
And you remember last week, if you're with us, I quoted from uh, in the New Testament in, in 1 Peter verse 2, verse 9, that in the New Testament, the believers of Jesus Christ are now the New Testament priest. See, in the book of Peter, it says, but you're not like that anymore. You're chosen people. You're a royal priest, a holy nation, God's very own possession. As a result, you can show others the goodness of God, for he called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. See, this is a reminder to us that God has called us as his priest. He's called us out of chaos. He's called us out of hard situations to show people the goodness of God. See, if people do not hear God's word, then we can expect that society is going to break down and cast off restraint. That is to be respect, expected. A society that does not understand God, does not have perfect, prophetic revelation, will cast off restraint. See, the harmful protests that we see, I'm not talking about the, the legitimate good protests, the harmful ones we see with the chaos and the destruction, that's to be expected. Racism is to be expected in a society that has cast off restraint. Lies are to be expected in a society that is cast off restraint. All of these things are expected in a culture that does not put God first. Or as Proverbs says, a culture without a prophetic vision. But as people of God, we are called to make sure that we are not the ones that are lacking restraint. We better make sure that we are different from the others. Because that is why God has called us out, as Moses called out the Levites. We'll quickly lose our voice or our ability to show others the goodness of God if we are not influenced by prophetic vision of the Word of God. See, we as a church and the people of God need to be a voice right now. A voice that speaks truth and a voice that promotes reconciliation and a voice that stands strong against racism. But this is the hard part. We need to listen to God as he calls us out of the chaos. See, during the last two weeks, I'll be honest with you, I've had to do a lot of self-examination. I've had to ask myself, am I part of the chaos? Am I part of the problem or am I part of the solution? Am I a racist? Do I have any racism in me? I'd examine myself. I'd examine myself and say, do I have white privilege? What does my white privilege look like? How do I use my privilege? How do I use my influence? I'd ask myself a lot of these hard questions. I had to look at myself and say, am I in sin in these areas? Do I carry prejudice that I do not even know? I'm not even sure yet. I don't think I'm a racist. I don't think I'm prejudiced. But I'll be honest with you. I've been really seeking God. Am I a part of the solution? And how can I be part of the solution? I've been asking God, would you lead me through a process that I can make sure I am showing the goodness of God to people? 
I love what Ashley Island of Mars Hill Bible Church here in Grand Rapids says. Ashley is a pastor of spiritual formation at the church, and she's also a black woman. And she writes, say what you need to on social media, then put down your phone and pick up your life. Not many will see you learning, confessing, repenting, uprooting, retooling, forgiving, inviting, empowering. But we will see its fruit. The hidden work is the heart work. It is the hard work. See, the simple truth is this. The first Bible that most people will read is our life. The first Bible that most people will read is our actions, in our attitude, in our words. If our actions and our words do not say love or promote love, we can easily turn people away from the gospel message of Jesus Christ. This is serious. I love this quote by James K.A. Smith. He's the author of You Are What You Love. He's also a professor at Calvin College. He writes, to follow Jesus is to become a student of the rabbi who teaches us how to love. To be a disciple of Jesus is to enroll in the school of charity. See, I love that quote. We need Jesus to teach us how to love. See, passing laws about racism is a good thing and we should do it. Passing laws about injustice is a good thing and we should do it. But a racist heart is not going to be changed by a law. A racist heart will only be changed by the love and the grace of God. And that's what we need to do. To show people the love and grace of God so we can see healing and reconciliation. We need to use our voices to speak grace and to speak love. James Smith continues in this book to remind us that Jesus does more than just inform our intellect. Following Christ is not just about study so we become smarter, so we just understand more verses. But to follow Christ means that Christ begins to shape every single thing in our life to the point where he shapes what we love. See, to be created in the image of God means that God is the one who forms our wants, he forms our desires, he forms the things that we love, and he's the God that gives us passion. We need to be passionate people. We need to be passionate over this issue of race and reconciliation. And God is the only one that can give us the true passion that will make a difference in the world. And see, all of this isn't going to happen overnight. And it's going to be a work that the enemy is going to want to stop. See, the enemy wants to stop us from learning how to love. And he wants us to stop us from showing love and grace. He will resist our efforts. And we need to be prepared to be discouraged. 
so we can resist it and we can stand against it. That's why the book of Haggai is so important to us right now. It's so important to us too as a church right now because I believe it serves as a prophetic warning to us that it's so easy to get discouraged at the current events of the day that we stop building our relationship with God. That we switch our priority and say, I'm not going to put God first anymore. See, that's what happens to the Israelites. They got so discouraged. And we become discouraged, you lack restraint. And we've seen that happen even in the body of Christ. It's easy to start to say, what difference does it even make? See, the book of Ezra is another book in the, the Old Testament that describes what life was like for the Israelites when they got back to Jerusalem after they got to Babylon. And the book of Ezra describes the discouragement that the Israelites faced when they got back to Jerusalem. See, what happened to the Israelites is when they got discouraged, they put themselves first. God went to second place. See, discouragement has a way of rearranging our priorities in our life. And we need to be prepared that that easily happens. And sometimes it happens and you don't even know it happens. So you remember the Israelites got back to Jerusalem after 70 years and they're excited to build, rebuild the temple and they got started on the temple and they were doing a good job. They had great momentum going because the Israelites knew that if they put God first, he would take care of their farms, he would take care of their houses. So they didn't have to first build their houses and their farms and their economy. They knew if they put the relationship with God first, he would take care of everything. And that principle has not changed in the last 2,000 years. We see that principle repeated in the book of Matthew, in Matthew 6, verse 33. It says, seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously, and God will give you everything you need. In other words, you put God first and he'll take care of all the rest. And that's the principle that the Israelites were living by at the time. We're just going to put God first and he'll take care of everything. And then in the book of Ezra, it tells us what happened to the Israelites. It says when they got back, they started on the temple, that they, they made a new foundation, and they set up a new altar, and they got momentum going, and they were encouraged. But suddenly, Ezra 4 tells us that while they are encouraged of what's happening, other nations started to notice, and they started to interfere. And then the temple construction stopped. So what the Jews did, they just said, oh, we're going to stop this. We have too much interference. Too many people are mocking us, ridiculing us. We're just going to leave this project alone. We're going to rearrange our priorities. We're just going to go home and work on our house. We're going to work on our business and we're going to work on our farms. And they neglected what they had been called to do to rebuild the temple. See what happened to the Israelites? They got discouraged because they put God first. See, the enemy is going to try to discourage each and every one of us when we put God first to try to get us to rearrange our priorities. See, in the book of Ezra, Ezra 4, verses 4, verse through five, it says, Then the local residents tried to discourage and frighten the people of Judah to keep them from their work. They bribed agents to work against them and to frustrate their plans. The message translation makes it a little bit more real. It says, So these people started beating down the morale of the people of Judah, harassing them as they built. They even hired propagandists to zap their resolve. Can you believe it? 
they hired people to work against the good people that were rebuilding the temple. It sounds very familiar. I like what Matthew Henry says in his commentary. He says, every attempt to revive true religion will stir up the opposition of Satan in the end of those in whom he works. Why am I bringing this up today? Because I think it's important for us to see that racism is an issue of the kingdom of God versus the kingdom of darkness. See, racism is not a Democrat versus Republican. It's not an issue of one color versus another color. It's not an issue of one race versus another race. It's not about one people group against another people group. It is an issue between God and Satan. Racism is a clash between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness. And we as followers of Jesus better make sure we know what side that we are on. We better make sure that we are not the ones that are discouraging people. We better make sure that we are not the ones frightening the people and trying to get them to stop doing the work that God has called them to do. I love this quote by my wife's childhood friend, Gavin Ortland. He's a pastor in California. He says, different people express outrage and lament differently. Don't be too quick to judge someone for not speaking in the way you would. Lots of people may be taking actions in ways that are not visible on social media. See, we need to be encouraging each other. Last week I quoted Matt Chandler who said that we need to become experts in thankfulness. This week I want to add to the list and I say we need to become experts in encouragement. We need to be experts at encouraging other people when they're doing what God has called them to do. We need to be experts at encouraging people who are taking risks and are taking efforts to serve God and encourage them in what they're doing. We need to recognize what people are doing and encouraging them. I think sometimes we fail to encourage as much as we need to. See, encouragement is always so much more productive than criticism. When we encourage people, it increases their ability so research will tell you that when you encourage people, it increases their ability to be flexible. It increases their ability to be creative. It increases their ability to even process information. When people are encouraged, they can do a whole lot more. Discouragement is dangerous. And the enemy is trying to discourage people. We need to make sure that we are using our weapons of encouragement to fight against the enemy. When we recognize that our brothers and our sisters and our friends and our families are doing what God has called them to do, we need to be the first to encourage them. Because if they're stepping out and they're doing what God has called them to do, I can guarantee you that the enemy is doing the same thing he did in Ezra 4. He's coming against them to discourage them. And he's coming against them and he's hiring people to make their life miserable. And we need to be encouragers. 
you need to take more time to encourage. And I'm speaking to myself as much as I'm speaking to anybody listening to me. We need to be experts in gratefulness and in thanksgiving, and we need to be experts in encouraging people. So join me now as we finally get to read from Haggai chapter 1. In Haggai chapter 1, it starts in the first verse, and it says, On August 29, it's an interesting thing about Haggai, they use dates. On August 29 of the second year of King Darius's reign, the Lord gave a message through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiah, governor of Judah, and to Jeshua, son of Jehoshadak, the high priest. This is what the Lord of Heaven's army says. The people are saying, the time has not yet come to build the house of the Lord. Then the Lord sent this message to the prophet Haggai. Why are you living in luxurious houses while my house lies in ruins? This is what the Lord of Heaven's army says. Look at what's happening to you. You have planted much but harvested little. You eat but are not satisfied. You drink but are still thirsty. You put on clothes but cannot keep warm. Your wages disappear as though you were putting them in pockets filled with holes. This is what the Lord of Heaven's army says. Look at what's happening to you. Now go up into the hills. Bring down timber, timber and rebuild my house. Then I will take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. You hoped for rich harvests, but they were poor. And when you brought your harvest home, I blew it away. Why? Because my house lies in ruins, says the Lord of Heaven's armies, while all of you are busy building your own fine houses. It's because of you that the heavens withhold the dew and the earth produces no crops. I've called for all of your crops, a drought to starve you and your livestock and to ruin everything you have worked so hard to get. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the whole remnant of God's people began to obey the message from the Lord their God. When they heard the words from the prophet Haggai, whom the Lord their God had sent, the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave the people this message from the Lord. I am with you, says the Lord. So the Lord sparked the enthusiasm of Jerubbabel, son of Sheatiel, governor of Judah, and the enthusiasm of Jeshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And the enthusiasm of the whole remnants of God's people, they began to work on the house of God, the Lord of the heaven's armies, on September 1 of the second year of King Darius' reign. See, Haggai had a very important message for the Jews who had returned from exile. They had started out so well. They had started with good intentions of putting God first. And then by the time you get to verse 2, it says the people are saying, the time has not yet come to build the house of the Lord. They gave an excuse, no, that's not the right time. Instead, they were focusing on their own interests. So Haggai stands up in verse 4 and says, why are you living in luxurious houses while my house lies in ruins? See, this is not a rebuke for living in a nice house. It's not a, a rebuke for having nice things. It's a rebuke for not having God as a priority in your life. See, Haggai follows up in verse 7 and says, Look what's happening to you. He reminds the people that nothing is going well in their life because they are not putting God first. He's reminding them, if you want your life to go well, you need to make God your priority. 
See, according to Haggai's message, if the people would place God at the center of the life, they would have every single thing that they need. The same thing that the book of Matthew says. And then we read in verse 9 that God says to the people, you had hoped for. Other translations say you expected much, and it didn't happen. And that even creates more discouragement when you expect something to happen. And it doesn't happen. You become even more discouraged. And the Israelites came home. They came back to Jerusalem expecting blessings, expecting provision. And their life got started out well rebuilding the temple. But what happened? The enemy comes in and starts to discourage. And he discouraged to the point where people stopped putting God first. And they said, now is not the time. That's the enemy's strategy. To make us think, now is not the time. We'll do it later. I think that's what the enemy wants us to do right now with the situation that's going on. With this racism and reconciliation and self-examination and reflection. is to get us to say, now is not the time. We'll do it another time. I can't help but think that this whole COVID experience is tied into how God wants us to respond to the racism epidemic that is happening as well. I'm just wondering if God had to get us to, to pull away from society a little bit and get some of us to stay at home for three months so he could actually speak to us about racism. I'm wondering if this was a strategic plan of God's. To say, I want you to listen to me. I want to call you out to be my priest, to be my representatives. And God's looking for our response. He's looking for our response. He's not looking for our excuses. So God gives a solution to the Israelites. He tells them, this is what I want you to do. He says, I want you to go to the hills, bring down timber, and rebuild my house. Then I will take pleasure in it and be honored. See, in other words, God's saying to the Israelites, go back to what you're doing before when I was your priority. See, a lot of times we think repentance is just asking God to forgive us from something, and that is true. But true repentance is doing what God has called you to do in the first place. And that's what God is speaking to the Israelites. Do what I called you to do in the first place. And I think God's saying that to us as well. Do what I've already called you to do. This isn't some new calling that you have. This is what I've called you to do. Now do it. I like what St. Augustine says. He says it this way. He says, our heart is going to be restless until it rests in God. See, I think God's making a lot of us restless right now. What am I going to do? How do I respond? Do I go downtown or do I stay home? Do I say? Do I post? We don't. We're restless. We're not sure what we do. 
And I think God is inviting us saying, come into a deeper relationship with me right now, and I will give you the prophetic revelation that you need. See, we're only going to find peace in our relationship with God. See, in other words, human beings, we've been created by God. And we've been created in His image to reflect God. And Satan comes in and is always trying to discourage, always trying to get us not to be on the path that God has for us. He's always trying to get us into chaos, but thankfully God comes in time and time again and rescues us and pulls us out of the chaos. Because God has a lot of stake in us. He has called us to represent him to a broken and a lost world. As image bearers, we are created to reflect God. And if I fail to become the image bearer that God has created to me, for me to be, I fail to be Jack. If you do not become the image bearer that God has created you to be, then you never become yourself. Because you're never who you truly, really are. See, James Smith in his book goes on to say, to be truly and fully humans, we have to find ourselves in relationship to the one who made us, for whom we are made. To be truly human and fully human, we need to find ourselves in our relationship to God. J.I. Packer says it this way. He says, the gospel is the way we learn to be human. That's a powerful statement. That I am not a human until I find my relationship and my identity solely in God. See, if you're feeling unsettled right now, if you're wondering what is my role in all of this, if you wonder what is going on, if you're wondering where's my place, if you're wondering how do you I use my voice, let me say to you, do not let the enemy make you discouraged. God is leading you. He's leading us as a church and as a community. He's forming our actions. He has us in his school to learn how to love and to love better. I've talked to so many people who feel so much condemnation right now. They're not really sure what they're supposed to do. And they're tempted to say, it's not time. See, I love in verse 12 that it says, it tells us that the whole remnant of God's people began to obey the message from the Lord their God. So God responded to them in verse 13, and he said, I am with you, says the Lord. The people of Israel make one little step towards obedience, and God comes in and says, I am with you. See, the full obedience of the Israelites is when the temple is done. That is their full obedience, but the Israelites showed one little effort and God comes in and says, I am with you. And then in verse 14, it says, the Lord sparked their enthusiasm. I love the, the English Standard Version better because it says, the Lord stirred them up. The Lord stirred up their spirit. God will stir up your enthusiasm. God's going to give you the direct desires. He's going to show you what you need to do. 
there's this little old book called The Little Prince. And in this book, there's a quote. And it says, if you want to build a ship, he counsels, don't drum up people to collect wood and don't assign task and work, but rather teach them to long for the endless immensity of the sea. If you want people to build a ship, you teach them to love the sea. Because when you love the sea, you're gonna want to build the ship. See, that's what God does for us. He doesn't just say to the Israelites, go get some wood, go bring it down and build my temple. Once you get all the work done, then I'll come in and then I'll be with you. No, God says to them, you go do that. And they show a little bit of effort and said, God says, I am with you. And then God comes in and says, I will give you the enthusiasm to do what I've called you to do. And I believe that's what God is going to do to each of us, that he is going to stir up in us emotions. He's going to stir up in us enthusiasm. Earlier, I said that to be created in the image of God is to have our thoughts and our ideas and our loves and our passions and our enthusiasm all directed by God. That what I love is what God wants me to love and that what I desire is what God wants me to desire. That is to be created in the image of God when everything in our life is because of what God wants to do in our life. And that's how does God accomplish that? He stirs up our spirit inside of us to give us the right desires and to give us the right passions. And then in verse 14, what does it say? It closes the chapter by saying, And then they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. They worked on the house of the Lord. They worked on their relationship with God. But that was after God had given them passion, that God had stirred up their emotions. That was after God said, I will be with you. See, this is how God works. You show up, and he'll give you the right passions. He'll give you the right desires. He'll call, you out of, he'll call you out out of chaos. And he'll set your feet upon a rock. And he'll give you a message. And he'll give you prophetic revelation. That you're going to love his law. And you're going to love his commandments. And you're going to love his righteousness. And you're going to do what he's called you to do. That's the stand we need to take right now is we're staring down at the face of this enemy racism and we're not sure what to do. But the God who said, I will be with you, knows what I need to do and what you need to do. And as a church, what we need to do as a community. He's gonna show us how to love well, how to serve well. He's gonna show us how to speak grace. But we need to show up and say, God, here I am. When, God, when, when Moses was speaking to the crowd and said to them, oh, calling people out of chaos, the Levites came out. We need to come out of the chaos and say, God, here I am. Send me. God, here I am. Send me. I'll go. I'm not sure really where you're, where you're calling me to go, but I'm going to go. Here I am. God, send me. God, thank you for today. 
Thank you for that you are the God that stirs us up. God, I pray right now that everybody listening to my voice, that you would stir us up. Lord, stir us up to be agents of reconciliation. Stir us up so we hate racism. Stir us up so that we are people that speak grace and love. Stir us up, God, to do what you've called us to do. God, I pray that you'd stir us up and shake complacency off from us. Would you shake disbelief from us? Would you set us free from a mindset that would say, now is not the right time. God, would you deliver us from the evil one and Lord, help us to walk in freedom as we walk to serve you and to honor you and to glorify you as we love. God, we pray that you bless our country right now. God, we ask that you'd stop the rioting. But Lord, help us to be able to be people that speak grace and love. Help us to be obedient to you. And God, forgive us as individuals and as a church for saying too many times, now is not the right time. Lord, now is the time. And I pray, Lord, that you would set us on fire to do what you've called us to do. May you purge the church of racism and prejudice and help us to love well. God, we love you so much. Thank you that you are a God who sends in the prophets to speak. Lord, continue to speak to the church through prophetic revelation. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.